Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you as always. Awesome. So if you have your Bibles on you, I would invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6, whether it's an e-Bible, paper Bible. If you want to steal from your neighbor, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> awesome. So do you guys know that relative that, you know, comes in from out of town and they get the royal treatment? You, got, you have anyone in your family like that? Whether uncle, cousin, aunt, brother, sister, whoever it is. You know, when, whenever they come in for a visit, it's like the president's coming through, right? Like your family is rolling out the red carpet for this person, every sense of the word. Like, and I don't know, mom, can you just raise your hand real quick? Can you just wave your hand to everyone? That's my mom over there. I'm just going to shout you out real quick. Um, if your mom is anything like my mom, it's all hands on deck when you get one of these visits coming, right? I mean, you're going to have a broom in one hand. You're going to have a mop in the other. The dog's going to be vacuuming the carpet. I mean, everyone's going to have a job. Everything's going to be in its correct place for this visit. And like we were just talking about before, I'm Italian, for those of you who don't know. So, yes, everything does revolve around food. So for these visits... We're going to have every course covered. I mean, breakfast, lunch, dinner, two snacks in between, three courses each. Whether you're hungry or not, you're going to be eaten. So I hope you're hungry. <laughs> so awesome. But that's, that's a good homecoming, right, though? I mean, that relative is really going to be feeling the love. That relative is going to be excited to be there. And that's why people say there's no place like home, right? Because you get that sense of feeling, that sense of belonging, that love that you feel. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about Jesus' homecoming. So, if you're with me in Mark chapter 6, can I get a big, loud, healthy, risen king church amen this morning? Amen. Hey, I like it, I like it. Alright, so verse 1 says this. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Father God, I just pray that you would bless the reading of your word. God, use me to speak boldly for you. Use me to clearly communicate your truth this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So up to this point, Jesus has had a pretty busy schedule, right? I mean, his ministry is really taking off at this point. He's been traveling all throughout Galilee. He's healing and teaching, casting out demons, and constantly battling with these religious leaders, right? And now he comes to his hometown of Nazareth. And we know Nazareth wasn't the city that he was actually born in. We know that was Bethlehem, right? But this is the city of his father, Joseph. This is where Joseph is from. This is where Jesus grew up, you know, where he had his first job. You know, maybe growing up, he played with his brothers and sisters around here. And I don't know where all of you guys grew up. Maybe it was a small town or a suburb or maybe a big city like I did. But in Jesus' day, Nazareth was what some might call a one-horse town. You ever hear that phrase before, one-horse town? In other words, Nazareth was tiny. There were only about 400 people lived there during Jesus' time. So I think it's probably safe to say everyone knew everyone, and they probably had their fair share of nosy neighbors, much like maybe where you come from. I don't know. <laughs> that this is actually not Jesus' first time back in Nazareth, though. Luke chapter 4 actually tells us about his first time back home since launching his public ministry. Um, so in this first, first visit back to Nazareth, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, much like we find him today in our verses. And when he was done, the people actually tried to throw him off of a cliff. 
So Jesus teaches these people, right? And in response, there wasn't an altar call, but a call to throw Jesus off of a cliff. So I don't really know if Jesus was necessarily expecting the red carpet treatment this time around. I don't know if he was necessarily expecting a big homecoming party. But isn't it amazing that he wants to come back at all? I mean, this, after being thrown off of a cliff, I don't know, maybe Jesus is still working in me. But if it was me, I'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm going to pass up on that. I'm going to skip over to the next town. You guys are crazy. Not cliff diving today. I'm good. But Jesus is so full of love and so full of compassion for these people in his hometown. The people that he grew up with, that he comes back for them. I mean, does that sound like something some, that Jesus did for someone in here this morning? I mean, even after our rejection, even after our sin, our shame, the way that we rejected Jesus, he came back for us. I mean, he doesn't just kick us to the curb because we mess up a couple of times. He restores us. He gives us life. So today we see Jesus teaching on the Sabbath day, and he begins to preach to these people in their synagogue. That's just another word for their church. And just a little background information for you guys this morning. Um, church services in Jesus' time were a little bit different than how we do church here today. See, there was no clear main speaker. In other words, there was no, like, pastor Tom. There's no guy that you would be expecting to bring the word for the majority of the time that they were meeting. Instead, all of the men of the town would come together and they would discuss together the, the Torah or the law of Moses. And if someone felt like they wanted to add something to the discussion, they would stand up and address the group as a whole. So Jesus, we see him standing up here, begins to teach these scriptures in a way that these people had literally never heard before. He speaks with clarity. He speaks with authority, illuminating these scriptures and bringing them to life. He spoke as if he was the son of God. Spoiler alert, he is. And people immediately noticed something was different about him. Now, Mark doesn't record exactly what Jesus taught about in this specific case, but he does record the people's reaction to it. Verse 2 says that the people were amazed. Turn to your neighbor and say, amazed, amazed. But how many of you know that you can be amazed by Jesus but not changed by Jesus? You can be amazed by Jesus but not changed by Jesus. See, what I mean by that is you can think to yourself, wow, you know, love one another as yourself. Yeah, I can get behind that. Or, you know, turn the other cheek. That's good. I like that. That This Jesus is a good, peaceful, moral teacher. You know, I can put, turn the other cheek. I can make that my Facebook bio, let people know what I'm about. You know, I like that. I can get behind that. But when you get down to it, when you really get below the surface, Jesus is infinitely more than that. He's not just a life coach with good advice. He's not just a moral teacher. No, he makes some pretty heavy and pretty exclusive statements. He claims to be the son of God. You see, there is no gray area with Jesus. You're either all in or you're all out. That's it. Simple as that. So it's not enough to be simply infatuated or amazed by what Jesus is saying. No, we're called to be transformed by his words. We're called to be molded by his teaching. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's my prayer for us as a church this morning, that we would not simply hear God's word and just let it tickle our ears or make us feel good, but that we would engage in it, that we would live it out, that we would wrestle with it, question it, talk about it with each other, almost as if in the same breath of amazement, these people ask, they, they begin questioning the legitimacy of Jesus. And we see that in verse 2 and 3. Where did this man get these things? They ask, what's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these miraculous things he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Aren't his brothers and sisters here with us? In other words, with these questions, what they're saying is, wait, 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 wait. 
I know that guy. No, no, no. I know the part of town that he grew up in. I know his parents. I know his family. How can he be the son of God? Who does he think he is? No, he's just a carpenter. I can imagine them saying to each other, no, no, look at his hands. They're rough and callous. Those aren't the hands of a learned man. He can't be the son of God. But no, these people were so familiar with the man Jesus that they were blind to the God Jesus that was standing right in front of their faces. They were so enamored with the man Jesus that they were blind to the God Jesus. See, even after hearing him preach and speak the truth with incredible clarity, teaching the scriptures in a way they'd never heard before, even after healing, hearing about all these miracles and healings that Jesus performed all throughout the countryside, these people refused to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They hated Jesus because he was just a common man like the rest of them. Jesus' deep knowledge of the things of God insulted them. They felt like he wasn't equal to them. So there's no way that he could be inspired by God. No, no, I know where you grew up. I grew up in the same place. How could you be inspired by God? This led some people there to start gossiping about Jesus' family life. I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not, but over the past 2,000 years, people have not changed that much. People still gossip. They gossip back then. They gossip today. But in verse 3, they, they ask this question, isn't this Mary's son? And on the surface, it's like, yeah, it's a pretty innocent question, right? They knew him. They knew where he grew up. They knew his family. Obviously, yeah, that's Mary's son. But when you get down below the surface, this was actually a bit of a loaded question. There were some undertones behind this question. What they really meant by saying, isn't this Mary's son, is, you know that's Mary's son, right? You remember that whole thing that happened about 30 years ago? She got pregnant with him before her and Joseph were married. You remember that whole thing that happened? No, I heard she slept around on him. How could this illegitimate child bring truth to us? Why should we have to listen to him? Maybe you had some people in your life like that. Maybe you identify a little bit with what Jesus was going through here. Now, they were so familiar with your life before Jesus, they don't understand how you could be changed by Jesus. You have anyone like that? They, their questions cripple you with doubt. How could you be used by Jesus after what you did? How could Jesus want you if you come from that broken family? It's almost like they don't recognize you anymore, right? You, church, Jesus, are you kidding me? Right? Like, you know what we used to do together, right? You know what we used to be, right? How could you be one of those church people now? But get this. They may say, I know what you used to do. I know who you used to be. I know where you used to stay. But God says, I know where you're going. You're not meant to stay in that place. You were created for something so much more, something so incredible that nothing on this earth could ever compare to. Come on, am I speaking to anyone this morning? You've been made new in Jesus. The God who knew you before you were even in your mother's womb has created you for a specific purpose. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. There's no bitterness, no regret. There's only Jesus. Now, a very wise, handsome, salt and peppered, sketchers wearing Puerto Rican pastor told me once. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know him, but he's a pretty good guy. Uh, <laughs> he told me once, God is far more interested in where you're going than where you've been. God is far more interested in where you're going than where you've been. I've loved that. I mean, that, that's been a couple years ago since, since I first heard him say that. And it's, it's stuck with me all this time. But as I was preparing this message, that quote popped into my head. And I heard God speak this to my spirit. Just kind of adding a little bit to that. I really feel like this is a word for someone this morning. It's this. Don't let where you've been dictate where you're going. Don't let where you've been dictate where you're going. See, where you grew up doesn't define you. 
Your family's social status or economic status, how much money you have, does not define you. Your past doesn't define you. Your race doesn't define you. Your sin does not define you. You are so much more than that temptation that you've been struggling with. You are designed in the image of an almighty God. Because you see, God is in the process He's in the process of writing a story in each one of our lives. And if you get stuck in one chapter, you're never going to know the full potential of the book. If you only watch the opening credits, you'll never know the plot of the movie. See, if you take any major person that God has used in the Bible, you'll see exactly what I mean. When I look at King David, I see an adulterer. I see a murderer. But that's just one scene. It's not his whole story. You see, he would go on to be called a man after God's own heart. When I look at Joseph, I see him in a pit, betrayed by his brothers, stripped of his dignity. But that's one scene. That's not his whole story. When I look at Moses, I see an ill-spoken, murderous fugitive. But that's one scene. That's not his whole story. And when I look at Jesus, I see him with the crown of thorns on his head, betrayed by the people that gave up everything to follow him. But that's one scene. That's not the story. Addiction is one scene, not the story. Do you see what I'm saying this morning? Divorce is one scene, not the whole story. Sickness is one scene, not the whole story. God's not finished yet. Don't let where you've been dictate where you're going this morning. See, where you grew up doesn't define you. There's always more. If you stay stuck in the valley, you'll never climb the mountain. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Focus on him. Trust the process of being molded by your relationship with Jesus. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's a process, and he's working you through. Amen? So we see Jesus' response to their questions in verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at these people's lack of faith. I think Jesus' response in verse 4 can be summed up in three words. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Aristotle was a Greek philosopher that lived from the years 384 to 322 B.C., And for centuries, people believed that Aristotle was right when he said that the heavier an object was, the faster it would fall to earth. Of course, anyone could have taken two objects, one heavy and one light, and thrown them off of a tall building to see if the heavier object would hit the ground first. But actually, no one did this until nearly 2,000 years after Aristotle's death. In 1589, a scientist by the name of Galileo summoned a group of professors to the base of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Galileo went to the top and pushed off a 10-pound weight and a 1-pound weight. Both landed at the same time. Both of these weights, the 10-pound and the 1-pound weight, landed at the same time, completely flying in the face of what everyone had previously believed of what Aristotle taught. But the power of the belief in Aristotle's teaching was so strong that the professors denied their eyesight. They literally denied the truth that they saw right in their face. They continued to say that Aristotle was right, even though Galileo had just proven them wrong in front of their own eyes. And we see the people of Nazareth hearing Jesus' words. They hear about the miracles that he performed, but because they knew Jesus was a common carpenter, they would not accept his words, even though it was right in front of their eyes. They refused to believe that he was the son of God as he claimed to be. Their hardened hearts and preconceived notions were enough to blind them from the truth that was standing literally right in front of them. Be 
because of this lack of faith, verse 5 tells us that Jesus was only able to heal a few people in Nazareth. Now, I want you to get this. That's not to say that somehow Jesus lost his ability to perform miracles because they didn't believe in him. But get this. Rather, it speaks to the fact that Jesus will not force a miracle down your throat. Jesus will not force a miracle down your throat. God created us all with a free will, right? We have the option to accept Jesus or to reject him. Jesus would have performed miracles. He could have performed miracles and healed the sick in Nazareth just like he did in all the other places that he's been to. But because of their lack of faith, because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus would not pour out his power. I mean, think about it. They could have literally had the greatest revival that Nazareth had ever seen, but they lost that opportunity. The people Jesus grew up with, the people who in a perfect and an ideal world should have actually been the most supportive of him, mocked him and rejected him. As I close this morning, I just want to ask the worship team to come forward. See, maybe you identify with Jesus here. See, maybe you were rejected by your own family or your friends. Maybe you listened to the people who told you that you'd never make it in life that you're too broken or too dirty to be used by God. And if you get nothing else out of this message today, let it be this. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what people are saying about you. God will never reject you. He can always take our worst situations, the things that we hate the most about ourselves, and turn them around for his glory. Don't let where you've been dictate where 